Ah, we are finally here. Romans chapter 8. What I think is one of the best chapters in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, all day, 24-7, comfort and encouragement uh, in all things. Last week, and you can go online, because the, the argument of Romans is very tight and very dependent on what precedes it. So last week, you can listen to that message online, we saw how in Christ we have the victory. But even in the midst of that victory, we still struggle with sin and the effects of the fall. If you look at the end of chapter 7, we read uh, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's answered in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it is through Christ that we are delivered, but it introduces here in Romans 8 this confounding way of life where we still struggle, but we have all the power necessary for victory in Christ our Savior. And so we'll look, and you may have in your Bible a chapter title there. Those are not inspired, right? We understand that. But it sure is accurate in this case. Mine says, life in the Spirit. That's what Romans 8 is about. So let's take a look at this life in the Spirit. I'll read Romans 8, 1 through 11. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we place ourselves under the authority of your word. Teach us, guide us. Lead us through your spirit as only you can, that we together, our hearts, our minds, might be transformed for your glory we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I came across a book. I love to be outside, love to go to national parks, state parks, and I came across a book entitled Subpar Parks. And it's subtitled, America's Most Extraordinary National Parks and Their Least Impressed Visitors. So these are sort of like online reviews 
of certain national parks and the absurdity of what people say, how unimpressed they are. So get ready. Are you ready? Yosemite National Park, Tunnel View. Have you been there? One of the most beautiful places in all America, Tunnel View. You've got Half Dome and El Capitan on the left, uh, Bridal Falls, the Yosemite Valley in front of you. Someone wrote, trees block view, and there are too many gray rocks. <laughs> Arches National Park in Utah looks nothing like the license plate. Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Quote, nothing specific to do. Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Didn't even get to touch lava. <laughs> and the last one here, Grand Canyon National Park. A hole. A very, very large hole. How can people write something like that about something so impressive? How do people come away with that conclusion after standing in front of some of the most beautiful scenery on God's created earth? What is wrong with them, you might think? But here's the thing. What's wrong with us? How can we see something so spiritually impressive as Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can we see that and likewise remain unimpressed or even apathetic towards the truth of the gospel? Maybe even doubting that it can be that Good, that life in Christ can be that good. Do you doubt that ever? Do you walk around with this sense that God is angry with you and he's got the lightning bolt in his hand, so to speak, and he's just ready to take you out if you take a step in the wrong direction? Romans chapter 8 is enough good news to last you the rest of your life to last you into all of eternity. Are you impressed with that good news? What kind of review would you write about God's redemptive plan and his action in the gospel? Would it be equal to the impressive grace of God, undeserved, given to us, which means we are no longer under condemnation? And so... Let's look together, maybe if you're a little unimpressed or somewhere in between, or you see this good news here in Romans A1 and you think, mm, I'd like to believe that, but I, I'm not quite there. We'll look at what this means uh, first. So what does no condemnation mean? We read it right there, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you need to understand this is a conclu concluding statement. We know that because of the therefore, and we know that what has preceded it has led us up into this point. I would say it this way. All of Romans 1.1 to 7.25 leads to 8.1, and then everything flowing out through chapter 16 of Romans comes out of this reality in Romans 8.1. 
For there to be no condemnation, what does this mean? I think it's best seen in contrast. Sometimes we understand things in contrast uh, to what they're not. If you turn back to Romans chapter 5, verse 16, we see this uh, term, condemnation. It's the same word used there in 8.1, used in Romans 5.16, in contrast to the word justification. So look in Romans 5.16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, we know uh, perhaps justification is the declaration that we are righteous. Remember, Christianity is more than just forgiveness. If you make Christianity only about forgiveness, you are truncating and reducing Christianity down to that which it is not. It is more than forgiveness. It is this declaration from God that we are righteous. How is that achieved? We, look at that, we looked at that in Romans chapter 3, especially verses 21 through 26, and you can go back, you can listen to that sermon there. But justification is this declaration by God's grace that we are righteous, that we are reconciled to God. How that happens is Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith, given to us by faith, such that our record before God is right. And we don't earn our way, nor do we, through our good works, maintain our status with God. He has given, to, given it to us in justification. So, back to our point here in Romans 5.16, you see justification, condemnation opposed to one another. Justification is the declaration that we are righteous. Condemnation is the opposite, that we are unrighteous. It is a declaration that we are unrighteous, that that is our status. And so condemnation is a speaking against us. Justification is a speaking for us. And so Christianity, as I've said, it's more than just about forgiveness. It is about this new status a new identity that God has given us, which equips us to live for Him and battle against our sin. Let's go back to Romans 8.1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a permanent change of status for those who have placed their faith in Christ, the perfect life He lived, the death He died for our sake, and His resurrection power. There is a permanent change in status given to believers and that is one of the reasons we celebrate and have joy. No matter what happens, it's no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. He has declared us righteous. Now, why, why aren't we impressed with that? Why aren't we impressed with this no condemnation status? Often it's because of the theology that we believe the thoughts we think about God, uh, and what we believe regarding justification, condemnation, sin, heaven, hell. To illustrate, I want to uh, bring up to you a sermon that was preached, probably the most famous sermon preached on American soil was Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, preached by Jonathan Edwards, 1741. We weren't a country yet. 
And in this sermon, it had a great effect on the people and started the first great awakening uh, here in America. The text that morning for Jonathan Edwards, and it is ironic that if you read others of uh, sermons of Edwards, he's known for portraying God's love, care for his people, kindness, mercy, and, and yet the sermon we remember Jonathan Edwards for is the opposite. And Edwards chose for his text Deuteronomy 32, 35, which reads, their foot shall slide in due time. And it was a sermon, really, because he, his church was full of those who claimed Christ, but were not Christians. They thought they were. And he, I'm going to read to you a paragraph. Remember, this is 1741. And how unlikely you would be to hear these words in a church today. Quote, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner, of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. When he read those words, and he read, and by all historical accounts, he read them in a monotone, straight from his manuscript, people shrieked, fell down on their face in repentance, and the first great awakening had begun. Can you imagine? Why, why is that not impressive today? Well, we don't talk about hell. We don't talk about judgment. In churches today, you would be hard-pressed sometimes to even hear the word sin, let alone God's holiness, righteousness, and our de being deserving of His wrath. And what I'm getting at is no condemnation is indeed unimpressive to us if we think a lot about ourselves. No condemnation is unimpressive if we think to ourselves, we in the first place don't deserve to be condemned. If we think 
we deserve so much more than we really do, then no condemnation is not a big deal. What I'm getting at is you know in part the goodness of heaven, the glory of the gospel by the badness of hell and the terror of God's judgment. We live in a culture that has tried to erase hell, tried to erase God's just judgment. We live in a Romans 1.32 world, Romans chapter 1, verse 32, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And as a result, the good news of the gospel is really diminished. If in point of fact, I get heaven without understanding that I have escaped hell, heaven is not that good. Do you follow me? By erasing hell, judgment, sin, and a holy God, it's no wonder we're not impressed by the gospel. We are not impressed with no condemnation if we don't believe in hell and God's righteous judgment of sinners and that we are those sinners. It's sort of like how if you've never gone without, you don't appreciate what you have. You know in part the goodness of heaven by the badness of hell. You know in part the grace of God by understanding we have received that which we do not deserve. And so the application here to this point of no condemnation is to think again, to get stuck on that point. To get stuck on Romans 8.1 and to celebrate how awesome it is not just to be forgiven, but to be called a child of God, adopted in, to, be, to have this new identity and status that God gives us in understanding we of all people have received that which we do not deserve and cannot earn. It's the badness of hell that in part reminds us of the goodness of our salvation. And so when Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation, this is a reason for Christians to praise God, to celebrate, to put our whole life on the altar before him. After all, we spent, do you remember, we spent Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20 looking at the darkness of our hearts. And we know in part the magnitude of God's salvation by understanding what is tragically wrong with our hearts and that we cannot fix it on our own. Now, as we think about what does no condemnation mean, this status that God gives us, that we are justified, that we can celebrate, that we are not just forgiven, but we are forever belonging to him and not condemned. Look at the second point here. What if I still feel condemned? What if I still feel? See how I'm saying that? I trained you, didn't I? That when you hear someone say feel, you need to put down what you're doing and pay attention to them because this is most fully 
what they are basing their argument on, and it is their, in a postmodern sense, their truth. Do you follow me? When people, when, when you ask a person, what, oh, what do you think about what's going on in the world right now? And they say, I feel, they kind of look up, and I feel like this is not a good way to make an argument. Feelings come and go. And what I am doing when I say I still feel condemned, what I am doing is I am saying and basing my theology and the truth that I believe about important things, the Bible, God's Word, forgiveness, the cross, the empty tomb. I'm basing it on something that is totally inside of me and subjective. Now, it's not that emotions aren't important. God gave us emotions. He made us emotional beings. It's just when you hear people say, I feel what has happened is we're basing our actions on intuition and subjective matters. So let's work on that. How do you come again? Well, what if I still feel condemned? The Bible says right here, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but I still feel condemned. How are we going to deal with that? We've got to look at what we've been given. And this is an important feature of the Christian faith because in light of serious questions, the Christian faith provides substantive serious answers. So if you still feel condemned, you've got to look at what you've been given. Well, what have we been given? Look at the end of verse 1. Let's remember this is for those who are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Now, those who are in Christ Jesus, this is that doctrine, union with Christ. It goes back to Romans 6, and look with me in verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. That's Romans 6, 5. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. Well, what does that mean? That means whatever Christ achieved is ours too by faith. So his death, the penalty being paid for our sin, by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53, that gets credited to us. The victory at the empty tomb, that's ours too. That's our victory too. We too will be resurrected in the new life. And so that is union with Christ. We're united to Christ through his work. What he has won for us becomes ours by faith. I still feel condemned. What is your spiritual status? You have been given union with Christ that you might not feel condemned. But what if I still feel condemned? Well, you have been given freedom. That's in verse 2 here. Look with me, Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Sin and death no longer have power over the Christian because of our union with Christ. We are able to resist sin. No, we don't do it perfectly, but we are at least empowered to uh, resist sin. Look back again, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So to be dead to sin is to not be responsive to it because something better has come along for us. And then look 
in Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The good news of the gospel for the Christian is we have been delivered. We have been set free. And usually we think of freedom as I get to do whatever I want. That's not true freedom. That's another kind of bondage. So true freedom is I am released from the bondage and the slavery of sin and death in order to do what God calls me to do. So we have been given union with Christ. We've been given our freedom. What if I still feel condemned? Do you know it's getting shorter? It's not feel, it feel condemned. What if I still feel? Well, you've been given the Son. Look at verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. God has accomplished what the law wasn't able to do. How did He do this? He sent His own Son to be associated with our sin such that when He dies in His moral perfection, sinless life, that uh, payment for our sin, the propitiation for our sin, as it's called in Romans 3, turns away the wrath of God that was due to us for sin. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's union with Christ. Because Christ was morally perfect, that righteousness is credited to us, to our account. Verse 4, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so far we've seen up against our feelings, which I would say truly sin is the number one stopper in people's spiritual growth. The second thing, a close second, would be their emotional state and how their emotions kind of hold them back in the Christian life. In answer to that, we're given a new status, union with Christ, and we are given our freedom. We're also given the Son. This is substitutionary atonement, imputed righteousness, and justification. And we're also given here, that would be enough, but we're not done yet. You're given a new way of life, new marching orders, so to speak. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. We used to be that way. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They focus on the things of the Spirit. Their mind is set that way. If we together set our mind on the flesh, verse 6, that leads to death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This is the new way of the Spirit that we're called to live into. Our old way of life is defeated not uh, through the power of the one who comes to indwell us. And so we're given this new way of life. Our life cannot look the same. Uh, and yet, at the same time, look at uh, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Unless a person is a Christian, they cannot follow God's way. This speaks to, verse 7 speaks to our spiritual inability to fix that which is broken in our hearts. 
And then verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we have this spiritual inability to rectify that which is wrong with us. Uh, And we're given this new way of life, this way of living in the Spirit. But you may say, I don't feel like I even have the Spirit. And that's the subject of verses 9 through 11 here. We're given the Spirit. You have the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians here. You're not in the flesh anymore. Live your identity is the implication here. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then we read this at the end of verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. This idea that a person comes to Christ and then has another experience somewhere down the line where they receive the Spirit is uh, biblically uh, inaccurate according to this verse. We understand Pentecost happened. That was a different time in redemptive history. But if we look at this verse, this is how things are going on the other side of Pentecost, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to them, to Him. In other words, put positively, if you are a Christian, if you place your faith in Christ, what He did on the cross for you, what can we say is true? You have the Spirit. You have the Spirit of Christ. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So we have the Spirit. The Spirit is life, and the Spirit gives us the power of the resurrection as reflected in our union with Christ and the fact that Romans 6.14, sin no longer has dominion over us. We do give in to sin, but it has no power over us. So, do you still feel condemned? Do you look, do you battle against your feelings? And see, that's the important thing. God made us as emotional beings, as I've mentioned. Your feelings are not necessarily wrong. The point is the feelings must be based on the truth, And what is the truth with regard to this issue? There is no condemnation. You are given union with Christ, freedom, the Son, a new way of living, and the Spirit, all so that you can reflect this life where there is no condemnation. No condemnation. I'm watching like you are on the news what's going on in Afghanistan, and you see people flying, uh, desperate to, to get to the airport to fly out of the airport, although I don't see any talk about the other major airports that are there in Afghanistan and uh, why we can't use those to get people out. But they know what's coming. They know what's coming, and they are desperate to leave and get free from that place, even leaving everything behind in order to Uh, get out, houses, relatives, possessions, everything behind to get out. 
And you think about that for a moment in light of the truth of this passage, and you think about the increasing level of safety a person who's fleeing might experience. They think to themselves, well, if I can just get to the airport, if I can just get uh, behind those American soldiers that are guarding the airport, I'll feel safe. And, and I'm sure they, there's a degree of safety that comes with that. And then you think about, well, I'll feel safe when I get on the plane and I see that big giant ramp shut. And then there's maybe more safety when the plane gets up in the air. And then maybe even more safety when it leaves Afghanistan's airspace, lands in, a, in another country. But then, then it kind of all starts over again, doesn't it? As a refugee, you start with, with nothing. And you think about that in light of these truths that are sealed, that are given to Christians. When would you feel safe, in other words? You know, is it when the plane's up in the air? But then the analogy really breaks down because as a Christian, it's as if we've landed in a different country because we are citizens of a different country. And instead of starting with nothing, we've been given everything, haven't we? We've been given everything. I'm looking ahead here, but look at Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has graciously given us all things. We are refugees from the kingdom of sin, from the kingdom of the devil. And God has delivered us and given us all things. You may quibble with me and say, well, I don't have exactly what I want, but God knows better than we do, doesn't he? And he has given us union with Christ, freedom, the Son, a new way of living, and the Spirit. He has given us all of this, and the giving and the receiving is so good that he even equips us through his own gracious generosity that we would board a plane and go back to the danger, to tell others how great this new kingdom is that we're living in. We have much to give thanks to God for, much to be joyful about, regardless of how circumstances are going in our life, in our world, in our society. The fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is something to base and to live your entire life on in celebration of all that God has given to us. Let's pray. God, how thankful we are that you will not also with him, you will give us all things. And you have done that in Christ. And we are prayerful, asking that you would help us to recognize the wonderful spiritual blessings of union with Christ, spiritual freedom, deliverance from sin, that we have the Savior and a new way of living, that we together are indwelt by the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Remind us of who we are 
that we might live into these blessings and then tell others about those wonderful blessings. We thank you for what we've been given. Let us be impressed with the wonder of the truth of what it means that there is no condemnation. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.